Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we are looking at the first of the Doomwatch movies entitled Doomwatch. It is nighttime on the Cornish island of Balf and a grieving family bury the body of a young girl in a shallow grave. This looks like a job for Doomwatch. At Doomwatch's ultra-modern high-tech command center, Dr. Quist and his staff, Dr. John Ridge, Colin Bradley, and fan-favorite Doomwatch team member, Dr. Del Shaw, are reviewing the situation with regards to the island of Balf. One year ago, an oil spill occurred off the coast of the island. Dr. Shaw is being dispatched to the island to collect environmental samples to see how the spill and the chemical detergents used to clean up the spill have impacted the ecology of the island. Shaw arrives for an overnight collection mission and is met with the unfriendly locals, who don't like outsiders. There's no room at the pub or the rectory, but the local police constable directs him to the Bothy, where he finds a room for the night, and the attractive, also outsider, schoolteacher, Victoria Brown. She's also not particularly warm to Shaw, and when he spies an odd procession of people outside forcing a man down the path against his will, she closes the drapes and passes it off as folks just going for a walk. The next day, while collecting samples, he spies a local watching him from a distance with a shotgun. When he leaves his sample case behind to collect some gull eggs, he finds that his case has been disturbed, probably by his mysterious watcher. Later, in the pub, he witnesses the locals interacting with each other. A simple disagreement over who pays the tab turns to violence, but the constable quickly rushes the aggressor out of the pub. Shaw sends his samples back to Doomwatch, then, over Quist's objections, decides to stay a few more days on the island. Later, we see that the publican, Mrs. Straker, has her husband, who is obviously ill, locked in an upstairs room. The next day, Shaw is playing Shutterbug, taking pictures of all the locals without their permission, until Mrs. Murray tells him off for his rude behavior. He agrees to stop unless he gets permission first. On his way back to the Bothy, he finds two dogs fighting over something. When one runs away, Shaw tries to shoo the other off, but attacks him savagely, but without injuring him at all. He digs into the ground to see what fascinated the dogs, and he finds the body of a dead girl, which he caresses rather disturbingly. He reports it to the constable, who rushes to the scene, but the grave has been emptied and filled in. He dismisses Shaw's concerns as being a mistake. Meanwhile, Mrs. Straker, with the landlady's complicity, searches Shaw's room to find out what he's doing. She also destroys his film. Shaw has gone to Victoria Brown. He is visibly shaken by the revelation of the dead girl, and while she seems disturbed at the news, she won't help. She's an outsider, and she needs not rock the boat to be able to function. These people have enough problems already. Back at the pub, Shaw overhears Mrs. Straker talking with the vicar. 
Maybe we should tell Dr. Shaw what's happening. Maybe he can help. No, says the vicar. This is God's divine plan. But maybe God sent Dr. Shaw. No, God is not so trivial as to use science to do his work. Later, Shaw tries to get Mrs. Straker to open up, but she doesn't. At Doomwatch, they've analyzed the samples, and it's all a bit weird. Everything seems to have an unnatural abundance about it. Quist asks for some fish samples. That night, Shaw sees the late-night walking party again, and this time follows them to an old barn. When they leave, he overhears animal sounds inside and sneaks in. He is confronted with a disfigured man who attacks him and brutally beats him. He awakes the next morning with Victoria looking over him. He was found on the beach, they said. He must have fallen trying to collect samples. He takes her to the barn, but the man is no longer there. He convinces her that he needs help to help these people. Victoria gets a fisherman friend on the mainland to help collect fish samples, since the locals will not. The samples are unusually large, and the fisherman comments that they're all like that around the island, but the locals don't export them and keep them for local consumption. The fisherman also takes them near Castle Rock, which is a prohibited area by the Royal Navy. It's been that way for about eight or nine years. It's on the opposite side of the island from the oil spill. Returning to Doomwatch, the fish samples reveal that they have unusual levels of pituitary hormones. Excess pituitary hormones causes a disease called acromegaly, the symptoms of which match the physical abnormalities of the islanders. Abnormalities that Shaw has assumed were from inbreeding. Just one problem. You can't absorb pituitary hormones by eating them, unless it was a chemically modified substance. Shaw goes to the Admiralty and speaks with Sir Geoffrey, who is in charge of the Navy dumping in the area. When he confronts him with the possibility that the Navy was dumping pituitary hormones into the sea, he dismisses the notion. We didn't dump dangerous pituitary hormones into the sea, just safe radioactive waste. You're barking up the wrong tree. Quist sends Ridge back with Shaw to get underwater photos of the dump. Ridge finds the nuclear waste and also canisters of something else. Canisters which are popping open due to their proximity to the radioactive waste. Shaw goes back to the island to try to convince the islanders to do something? Cooperate? I'm not entirely sure. While the rest of the Doomwatch team cause international incidents when word of the contaminated fish gets out. They also track down the canisters to a chemical company. Ridge questions Sir Henry, head of the company. Yes, we did attempt to make a feed additive based on pituitary hormones, but it failed, and we disposed of the chemicals properly by awarding the disposal contract to the lowest reputable bidder. That company is based on the mainland, just across from the island of Balf. Shaw and Victoria go there and collect an as-yet-undisposed-of sample of the chemical and give the owner a bit of tongue-lashing for their irresponsible dumping. On the island, Shaw tries to set up a meeting to discuss the issue with the islanders. They are getting distinctly hostile towards him. On his way to the meeting, he encounters young Brian Murray, grandson of the man that was in the barn. He, too, is getting the uglies and has been the person watching Shaw. He decides to trust him and agrees to go to the meeting. At the meeting, Shaw explains acromegaly, using Brian as his lab dummy, and he explains that it can be cured. You just need to go to the mainland for treatment for a year or so. Quist has a medical team ready to arrive, but the islanders refuse to have their way of life destroyed, and when Shaw tries to call Quist to send in the team, they bring in some of the ugliers of the ugly 
and threaten to kill him. But they don't, and the police and medical team arrive and evacuate the island. Chalk up another victory for everyone's favorite Doomwatch team member, Dr. Del Shaw. The end. Uh, warning to listeners, before we start this one, and full blame taking, uh, a week or so ago, <laughs> Simon and I sat down to record this. We had a nice, we got oh, a good 45 minutes into a, a very nice conversation about this, about this film. And uh, I found out I hadn't pushed the record button. So we've waited a while and we've come back at this one and we're, we're trying again. Uh, the hope of waiting is that we don't assume that things we've already talked about were in this recording session. And so we're back to square one. Um, so, Simon, what did you think of Doomwatch the movie? Well... Eugene, how kind of you to ask, and I, I'm sure you'll be quite surprised by my comments on this. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, the, I, I, I found it quite an interesting one because the, I wasn't sure what to expect. And that's partly because I mm -hmm. think when when you have the the TV shows of that era made into films, and I, I guess my experience of these is much more around comedy sitcom sitcoms like uh dad's army or porridge or step two and son or whatever what they tended to be was more of a kind of a remake essentially taking possibly an origin story and basically reworking something that is naturally a a half hour situation into something that will fill a cinema screen and 90 minutes. So I wasn't quite sure what they were going to do with this. And I thought it was quite interesting. I knew, I did know that, um, that Quist and other members of the team were going to be in it. I also did know that they were not the main characters. So Ian Bannon as Del Shaw was going to take the lead. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't totally sure why. It turns out Ian Bannon is is a was a a bigger star in the nineteen sixties. I know him from the the famous TV adaptation of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in which he played Jim Prido. But um, apparently, that made it more likely to be a draw. But you can you can kind of see the you can kind of see the appeal for the the filmmakers of making something that, is, that they're, t they're taking an existing property they know is successful. They know a bunch of people who've watched it on the telly are going to come and see it. But also they want to make sure that it's, that they, 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 they're not just fishing in that particular pond of TV viewers. They want to open it out to other people. So it's got to, it's got to bring in the new viewers. And I, I thought the way they did this was, was pretty effective actually by having the the existing uh doomwatch team in the frame but because we've got a, a a new character and essentially a new story we've got something that will be meaningful to people who are not familiar with the series yeah i mean it it many of the episodes of doomwatch do have a tendency to um concentrate on one character going off and doing an investigation with support from the from the other team and perhaps a little more support but 
it, it is within the framework of Doomwatch that you would yeah. take a researcher and you'd send them out. And it is just, I guess, interesting that it's being done while the show is being aired. So you have a, you have a big jump in cinematic quality between the series, the budget and the movies, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really look anything like Doomwatch the series it, it is it it's like it's in a different universe almost except that we have the familiar faces and even they aren't in familiar places which you know is, is understandable you can't put tv sets from that era on film it just it would look terrible i and, i i, mean, I, yes, I did, I did think i did think it was a bit strange that they that they made the effort to slot it into the continuity, which I liked. And yet they didn't bother to explain the fact that Doomwatch was now headquartered in somewhere that looked completely different from what we'd seen on the, the TV screen. And obviously they didn't have to show Doomwatch headquarters. They could have had them meeting somewhere mm -hmm. else, you know, do, do our labs are being redecorated. We've got to. I was going to say gas leak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, all that. Or, you know, whatever. Or, or they're particularly busy, and therefore they they've moved somewhere where they can bring in a lot of help. Because I mean, that's the other thing about it. Continuity. So I mean, the last couple of discussions about doing what <laughs> they could all be sheltering in of, place for a pandemic. We, we've been going backwards a little bit because um, when we talked about sex and violence, in fact that probably came somewhere between Waiting for Knighthood and Hair Trigger. And th this film, I hadn't actually realised, but th this this film was um, released in March of 1972 and Series 3 of Doomwatch didn't start airing until June of 1972. So, again, continuity-wise, the film comes somewhere between Public Enemy and, and uh, Fire and Brimstone. And amongst the characters that we see are they chantry um they, we don't see hardcastle so it's obviously before she went off to whatever she did um, <laughs> i can't i can't even remember what fire and brimstone explained she no it wasn't fire and brimstone it wasn't, it wasn't until high mountain that they explained it's one we didn't off, see but, yeah that they said she's off gone back but, to um, research or something so yeah so 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 we're in the we're in this period between public enemy and series three and then obviously at the beginning of series three, the Doomwatch setup is completely shaken up. They move to new offices. They get a load of new staff. Mm -hmm. And the irony is the film looks like they've moved to new offices and got a load of new staff, but it's at the wrong point in the continuity for it to be that. Yeah. This is also the last, uh, I think, uh, official contribution from Peddler and Davis, isn't it? I I couldn't. They, they find went off out. after series two and and kind of farmed this out to a movie company, but parted ways with a production company about that for the TV series around this time. The the there was there was a a breakdown in the the shared vision between Terence Dudley and Peddler and Davis on the way the TV series was going. So the the what we saw of series three and the and the, the sort of um, much more political direction of it, I guess, and maybe there being less emphasis on the on the on the kind of scientific extrapolation 
I don't I don't know mm -hmm. exactly what what the issues were. There. What I couldn't um, put my finger on exactly was what input Pedler and Davis had into the film, because their credit isn't there's, isn't a, there's an credit, odd yeah. there's an odd credit. So mm -hmm. Clive Exton, who I was astonished to find writing for this. Clive Exton is the guy who adapted all of the nineties. Um, Jeeves and Worcester series for, uh, for Hugh, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry. Well, turns out he was he was around in 1972, and so potentially he was an adapting an idea from Pedler and Davis, but it's not it's not clear how developed that idea was because the credit he gets is final screenplay, as if mm -hmm. there had been there had been some other earlier screenplays that the studio had sort of thrown most of away. And that's hard to believe because I, there's usually a very regimented uh, nature to how they name script, you know, story by script by um, that's all in yeah, the union yeah. contracts with the writers guilds. And I've never seen final script by that is a, uh, that's different. So it could just be different time, but I mean, it, it felt to to me that this the, obviously the, the one of the differences with the film is that it's got a running time that's basically twice as long as a standard Doom Watch episode, and yet mm -hmm. the story felt a bit as if it were a double length TV story, which you know, in a way, is that's exactly what I what I want from a film that is part of a TV series that I'm enjoying. I mean, I think that's what worked well in, in X-Files Fight the Future. And it, it partly feels like it's a T, an extended TV episode here, I think, because it's not entirely original. So there are elements, and I would say quite strong elements, that are drawn from episodes that we've seen already. So... Yeah. Um, but one of them is in the dark, just uh, not the main part of in the dark, but just that that initial idea of uh, dumping it at sea. So much so that at the at one point I thought, could th could this be the same place? Except that was in that was in Scotland, and this is in Cornwall. Um, mm. Battery people and the you know the aggression caused by uh, chemical additives and and and. Uh, coming through the, the, the food that gets eaten and the whole uh, small community stuff in the Islanders, because I mm -hmm. mean, obviously in the Islanders, they are moved away from the Island, but this is essentially the same kind of thing. It's, it's dealing, well, it's, it's dealing yeah, with it's... a small closed population who are, who are uh, quite isolated and, and separate from the kind of general social norms in a situation where they are having to, they're, they're actually having to deal with change that is forced upon them by technological advancement that they have no control over. There's also the one where the, the whole village is evacuated at the end. The invasion. Because of the, yes, the invasion. So, I mean, it, it is a common yes, theme. Yes, similarities and, and to I, that. I think it's a fair one. I mean, I, I think that that's probably, if you were... Um, if you were a writer and you were trying to explain 
the destruction of our planet by by man-made means that by making it basically a small world the village is a small world your place where you live will no longer be habitable you'll have to leave you'll be gone you know it, it's it's a compelling theme um yes so and, and, I, I don't and, and, blame them no i don't i know this is not a criticism i think it's an excellent adaptation which i i guess is a no surprise coming from Clive Exton. And it's also drawing on the period of Doomwatch that I think was the absolute high point of the show. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good film. It's an enjoyable film. It, and I think it stands on its own. I mean, they do have to put in that sort of opening credit sequence where the, the pretend teletype, which is actually a typewriter... <sighs> Uh, explains to us that uh, we need to create a Doomwatch organization, but so you you could you could walk into that film and know nothing about Doomwatch and it, it's, have it's enough in, of the framework. It's interesting that at that point, when they when they say we need to create a Doomwatch, it is to deal with pollution. And there's that there's that yeah. I work for Doomwatch. Oh, the pollution people. So we're we're the very anti-pollution much... people. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 kind of the the tenor that has been set in Public Enemy that seems to run very strongly, based on what we what we've been able to see of Series Three, that this is that this has become very pollution focused, certainly applies to to the film that they are making between Public Enemy and and Series Three, and you know, fair enough, it it's a it's an important theme and it works well with the story that they've developed here mm -hmm. um i will say just one thing the uh acromegaly is is actually right for the most part um the symptoms the the description uh it's it's when he is using poor brian as uh, a a lab creature to explain the the <laughs> i didn't like that scene much Frankly, I felt, I don't know, I, I felt Dr. Shaw was being a little bit inhuman. It was like, here, I'm showing off the freak. Look at this. Look at the teeth. Look at the thing. Look at the, the. I mean, they all know this, but. It was also, it was also, it didn't feel like he was, it didn't feel like he was listening to the concerns that were being raised. Oh, no. And no, he there wasn't. Are, no, he wasn't. There are, there are a number of instances, public enemy is one, um, the uh, the Islanders is another actually where Christ steps into that role of talking to a public meeting of people who are inclined towards hostility, and he is very skilled at it, and he listens to them even when he doesn't he doesn't agree with them he doesn't he doesn't pretend to agree with them, but he addresses directly the concerns that they're raising. And Shaw doesn't even seem to listen to the concerns that they're raising. He just wants to get his own point across. Well, he knows what's best for them. So it's, he's the man of science. They're just a bunch of yokels. I mean, and that's, that's clear. That comes off very clear. Well, what I was uh, going to say, though, is uh, he, he, might be, he might be reading it right out of Wikipedia, uh, the description of the, the disease when it comes, you know, the spacing, the teeth and this, that. There is this one thing missing. As far as I could tell from anything I could find, there is no increased aggression 
in, uh, in that particular illness. It's a physiological change. It could kill you. It could, um, you know, give you, I think, heart problems and vision problems and all sorts of things, but it does not turn you into a murderous, uh, monster. Uh, at the, so they jazz that up to make the threat, uh, a little more palpable in, in the series or in the movie, which is, I suppose, but how, how did, how did it work as a suspense? Because that, I think that's probably the biggest difference here is that, that Doom Watch, the series, occasionally is a mystery, but it, it the drama comes about from the ideas, I feel. And in this one, there was a lot of brooding menace that they were trying to build into it instead. Mm. So more of a, more of a, a, a drama film, drama film, melodrama film. <laughs> it's like, um I, I well done it 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 did feel like it did feel claustrophobic um and it did up to up to a point because and then he left the island and it just kept yeah. hopping back and forth yeah <laughs> yeah and it and, and it and it yeah. felt it felt it that i mean that that felt unnecessary and it also it deflated the tension that had been built up to that point when because we're we're back and forth between the the, the Doomwatch lab and what Quist and the mm. team are discovering there with the samples that have been sent through, and what Shaw is discovering on the island, and then you have that scene where they're back in the lab and suddenly Shaw walks into shot and you realise that oh he he's left the island and he's flown back, and there's been all this big deal about how how you know the the boat only comes once a day and how difficult it is to leave the island. So that mm. felt three times a week. Very strange. Oh, yeah. Three. Yes. Yes, indeed. He had to get it. He had to specially charter it to come back the next day when he was originally planning to only stay for the 24 hours. So, and the phones only work, you know, badly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, he, he, he was very claustrophobic. And then he hit to the second half of the film and suddenly he was just like, all right, I'll be back to the lab. All right. I'm, gonna, I'm back in the lab. I'm, Let's go over to the mainland and check up on this stuff. It was just, it, it did, it did it, deflate, it, deflate it, that. It fe- yes, it felt like at that point we'd sort of, we'd sort of, um, something that had been developing just been abandoned. And it didn't, it didn't destroy the narrative because as soon as you get back into their, their rushing around, you know, going to see the naval chappie and going to see, um, the defense minister from the bond films um yeah yeah um can't think whatever of whatever he was playing the the sir henry was who he was playing yes um, uh, he he was he was the the ceo or whatever of the company that had been producing the or had been originally trying to produce the 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 uh, the chemical but um yeah once once you once you get into that the more kind of standard fare of the doom watch modus operandi then you get caught up in that part of the story and it's okay but it did it did feel like you wondered what why they had done that build-up in the first half because you're going to get a bunch of people coming to see the film thinking they're going to get to see the wicker man and Mm -hmm. if they're not familiar with the tv show then they're perhaps going to be surprised that what they're getting is something else entirely yeah, it, it almost feels like in the second half of the film he's got the Doomwatch helicopter, so he can just <laughs> nip back yeah. and forth. 
Um, let, let's you, you touched a little bit about on on the poor human personal skills that Dr. Shaw seems to exhibit there with the Islanders. I, I wanted to bring up another point, but we can just talk about his his general behavior in the course of this story. There, but there is a scene uh, at the very beginning. He arrives. He goes to the the pub, which seems to be the. And again, I'm going to confess my ignorance here, but my understanding was that typically the pub, public house, was often a place often a place of accommodation in small towns. So yes. he would expect to go there first. Um, so she's, so he goes to the rectory. Um, I didn't know that, that religious buildings rented rooms, but okay, there he goes. But she told him to go to the rectory. He didn't. She told him to go to the rectory, yeah. And so then he goes to the constable. And the constable points him to the right place. But the constable also says to him, what are you doing here? And so as one government official to another government official, from somebody who's there on a benign remit, which is to take pollution samples to find out if everything's okay, his response to the cop is basically none of your business. He doesn't tell him what he's doing there. He's like, I don't see that's any of your business. What? Why is it a secret? What, what, why, why would you not tell the local authorities that you're there collecting samples just to, you know, if nothing else, to grease the wheels? And who the heck does the booking for Doomwatch, the travel plans. Was she on vacation this week? Um, <laughs> I can't think of her name because why did he not have a place to Barbara stay Mason. lined up? Why did they she's not? Not in the film. Yeah, she's not in the film. Not in the film. Why did they not have a, a you know a place to stay lined up and people that knew he was coming? He just shows up on the dock. He's like, "Yep, I'm staying overnight. I'm collecting samples wherever I feel like it, too, as far as I can tell." Uh, but surely that that odd. is he. In 1972, when you're going to a remote island like that, in many ways, it is actually easier to do that because it's not like you can you can go on the internet and go to booking.com. It's not well, even know. like you can ring up directly anywhere on the island. It's not like you can get a directory of anywhere on the island. But there's bound to be somewhere to stay, and it's unlikely everywhere is going to be booked up. So why wouldn't you just turn up? And, is there bound and... to be somewhere to stay? See, I'm not... I'm not sure that I, I yeah, get that. I, I mean, so. there's lots of there's lots of small towns in in where I live that you could pull into, and no, there's nowhere to stay. Well, you know, I think just... that I think that would be uh, that would be unusual. I mean, like you say, you would expect to be able to you'd expect there would be rooms in the pub. Um, I don't know. It is so, to to me that didn't seem that 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 just seemed to me more like a something of the times that. It, to me, it felt more of the Hammer Horror 18th century times. You pull into the small, small towns, have a public house where people stay. Because travelers are traveling through. They can only go X number of miles a day. You know, that that made that made sense. And, it, you know, I, I kind of feel like this film was trying to evoke that, that feel. Yeah. So it just, but, but when he got to the... But when he got to the constable and he basically told him, I'm not telling you why I'm here, that didn't make any sense at all to me. Well, it did to me because I thought there was a development in, in Shaw. Um, there, 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 is, there is a line in it that doesn't make sense to me, which is partly to do with 
I don't think we see at this stage what what's going on with him. At the point where you're complaining about it, he literally is just, he wants to turn up and collect his thing. He doesn't want to interact with anyone. He wants a bed and presumably a meal. But basically, he he's there to do a job. He's going to be off on the boat the next day. He doesn't need to talk to anyone about the work itself. And then during the course of his investigation, he somehow does actually become fascinated with what is what the effect is on the islanders so the bit that i wasn't sure about is why after 24 hours he decided to stay because at that point it wasn't clear enough to me what had got his attention Uh, in a way i almost felt like he just wanted to annoy the villagers a bit more well, I guess that would be that would be one possibility. But he'd gone he'd gone very suddenly from, and I, I mean, I think it's a legitimate starting point for a, for a, for a character journey from being, you know, quite um, rude and uncooperative at the beginning because he was just he was there for this one purpose, and then he was leaving, and he obviously by the end of it he becomes very involved in their story and for whatever reason he he wants to resolve things he wants to do something that will help them but it's not clear to me at the point where he decides to stay what he's discovered by that point it doesn't feel like there's it doesn't feel like enough has happened to move him that distance from the very grumpy and uncommunicative person who tells the the constable or the sergeant or whatever it is uh none of your business yeah uh yeah i I, it if it had come after he'd discovered the body uh if it had come it did come after he had had them searching his samples um but would would that i i see the thing is i don't know him I don't know him, so I don't get why that... W- if it was that, why would that mean he didn't want to leave? I don't know. I don't know. There was a little... There was a line at the beginning of the episode. Eh, what if I want to stay on for a few days to to Quist at the very beginning? And Quist just basically says, yeah, you don't want to do that. Or something to that effect. I need you back here... So you think maybe he always planned on staying? I think he wanted a vacation, yeah. (laughs) It's like, like, I'm going to stay here for a couple more days. I mean, it's not like he had anything like... If he he was after a holiday, you'd think he probably wouldn't want to rub the people up the wrong way who were going to be his neighbours for however long. Well, we don't we don't know how how much of a people person Doctor Shaw is, but my experience so far is that he's not much of one. So maybe he's just clueless when it comes to that. <laughs> Brilliant scientist, terrible with people. I I don't know. Um, I, well, he certainly isn't. I mean, I I can uh, I can agree with this that he could not have explained to Quist on the phone because the publican was. Standing there in the room listening to him. Yes, but he, he so could have found another way to explain a, to us. an excuse. 
talking to Victoria, maybe. Yes, that kind of thing. Um, something. But yeah, it, it, it is not clear. Uh, I think the only thing really is that he had his samples rummaged. And I have a question about that. It looks to me like stuff was stolen from his case. There was like a big envelope or something. And, and it didn't appear to be there when he got back. But it seemed to make no difference to his sample collections. It's, we never got another line that says, well, I had more samples, but somebody stole them. Or I hope I got enough because half of them were taken or nothing like that. So I'm just wondering if it was just meant to show us that the case had been obviously rummaged, and but I it never it never went anywhere. No, I, even even later when when he talked with Brian, he said, "Well, they just told me to keep an eye on you." Okay, did they tell you to look through his samples? No, I, I don't know. That was a little that was a little weird. But I guess I guess you know, it's a mystery. He could just be the kind of guy. It's like I got I got. I got to know what they were doing with that old guy last night. I got to know why they were messing with my stuff. Why are they so concerned that I'm just this strange government guy that's shown up on their island and I'm starting to take collect things? I mean, why are they worried about that? What could possibly go wrong? I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It could also be that he's just fascinated with how ugly some of them are, which would explain why the next day he went after with the, with the camera, because that does seem to be what changed. Instead of going after samples, could, now he's sampling the people. Could be. Could be. Um, maybe, you know, maybe he, he actually does think that's something to do with the oil spill. I thought that was another example of how bad he is with people because... Oh, yeah. Struck me as extreme. I, I mean, it was remarkably rude. Yes. <laughs> it, it was It shouldn't really rude. have taken someone saying, we don't like that, to... to Make him think, oh, maybe I should ask people's permission. Ooh. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he, he was even pretending to take pictures of the town. <laughs> no, <laughs> right? exactly. He could he's have like, oh, a that's a beautiful architecture on that rectory. <laughs> no, he's zooming in on their faces and... <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it was very tactless at, at best. Um, and also, let's continue making fun of Mr... <laughs> Mr. Shaw, Dr. Shaw's uh, behavior. When he digs that girl's arm out of the ground, I was deeply, deeply disturbed by the way he held her hand and just sort of started rubbing it. Like, he's not checking for a pulse. He's not... I mean, she's obviously stone cold dead. What is he doing there? I... It was... It was wrong. It was just wrong. That is not how you handle a corpse. They're just no, uh, uh. So slightly weird uh, character. Would this story have worked if they could have just sent John Ridge? Did we have to have Doctor Shaw here, or could it could Hardcastle or Ridge or Chantry, any of them, have done this? I think I think it could have it could have worked with any of them. It would have been different. But it wouldn't necessarily have been any worse. I don't... I, in a way, I just... I don't have any problem with him sending Dr. Shaw in. I think I probably would have liked it better if just at the beginning they had done something where, you know, he Quist is briefing Dr. Shaw. Then they walk over to the computer where Ridge and Bradley are working uh, about that complete red herring about lead additives in fuel. And... 
he uh, he'd said something like, uh, "Oh, uh, Dell, you've you've met uh, John Ridge before, right?" Yeah, yeah, we met before. Oh, this is Colin Badley. Oh, nice to meet you, Dr. Shaw. Joining Doomwatch, are you? Yes. It's like, okay, anything. Anything. So that we could have known. Here you go. He's our new whatever specialty of scientist he was. And we as the audience would have gotten it. And it could have, it could have been demonstrated that he wasn't exactly new. But at the same time, he wasn't. You should, you're not expecting him to be somebody else. But instead, he's just talking to this guy. And off he goes to the island but I, I mean, I think I think that they weren't that bothered about continuity in those days. I mean, like I say, a lot a lot of the the films of things would have just gone for the complete reboot. I I would I would have preferred it, like you, but that's that's because I think it would have just it it, it it's a bit it's the, it's the same thing as why are they why why does the Doomwatch headquarters suddenly look completely different and why are the why are the hundreds of extra staff. <laughs> No, there's, you could there's, have, there's one other... You, you could have thrown in a line that would have explained it in a way that didn't bog the story down for the new viewers. And that I, would, I don't that think that, that kind of line... Well. I don't think that line would have kept... would have bogged it down for the viewers. I mean, it's a couple of lines of dialogue and they had plenty to spare yeah, exactly. in the time. And it would have allowed... It would have allowed Quist the opportunity to introduce Dr. Shaw to Bradley or Rich. It doesn't matter which one. And introduce him to us. You know, what, what, what is Dr. Shaw's specialty? I don't know. At the end of this episode, I don't know what Dr. Shaw is. Is he a medical doctor? I've got a note saying is he, is he a medical doctor. I can't remember what prompted it now, but... We, we, we have absolutely... Because they did ask, you know, he's a doctor, maybe he can help. Or, and and the, the vicar, Reverend Ricker, whatever he is, said, no. You know, but we didn't know he was a medical doctor. <laughs> I mean, Dr. Ridge isn't a doctor, medical doctor. If they'd sent Dr. Ridge, would they be asking the same question? Well, he's a doctor. No, he's not. We don't know. So I, I, I would have liked to have known why that guy was sent to that island. Is he an expert on lead-additive fuel? I, I, I just don't know. We just don't know what he was. Was he a chemist? And, and I think that would have been better in that introduction for us to, to be level set with that. Not just not just to make me feel good about oh he's a new guy at Doomwatch fine, but to give us a little better stand on that. Anything in particular that stands out here? I've got a few things written down, but but if, where do you want to go with this? Well, I, I covered most of the things here, but I just wanted to mention the I, because obviously this is a this is a a cinema release. Um, I think we said that, but it it's it you mentioned it's one of two Doomwatch films, but the other is a TV film. And the the director of this, which I mean it it I mean partly because we're watching a a crummy four three um pan and scan of <laughs> of the original widescreen. Um just just a warning to those who haven't watched it yet who are still to track down a copy the Certainly, the DVD edition I've got, I I, I hadn't realised it was four three. I believe the Blu-ray, which is also available, is proper widescreen, and so that's that's worth getting hold of. Anyway, you're you're looking at a a, a cinema release, but it still it it kind of I'm sure it worked in the cinema, but it still had 
a feeling of being consistent with the television programme. And the director, Peter Sadsey, directed television as well, because I think, to remind me of the date, but we the, the Stone Tape, which we've talked about on the podcast, mm-hmm. was directed by him as well. Okay. And I think it was okay. around the same time. It would be very near early 70s. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Um, I credit where credit's due. I mean, it is a, despite the 4-3 ratio, it certainly would have been better in widescreen because I think it could have used the location shots a little better or they would have been, the, you know, the village in particular, those sort of long, narrow streets and, and tallish buildings. Um, the whole thing could have could have looked a bit better. Not that it looked bad, but, you know, I think that would have worked nicely in that format. Yeah. Uh, and of course it was shot for that format. So the, some the decisions have been taken away from the director as to how it gets presented when they make it into the four, three, uh, the four, three version of it, but it was very competently done. It doesn't yes. look like a TV director who didn't know what he's doing. And, and you got to remember that, that in 1971, it, it was, it was, it was clear he had the sensibilities of both, both media. I felt it was it was a it, it was a film of a TV show that took advantage of the cinema, but understood what it was dealing with. In in seven in the early seventies, television and film directing, cinematography in particular, was very very different. I mean, now with with HD cameras, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. television video, you know, is is much more cinematic in its structure and and layout and lighting and and whatnot because some tv shows do single camera stuff right so it it, you know it's not as unusual for there to be little or no the x-files movies for example there's not much difference between the look of the x-files movie and the x-files no but again i mean in and some that's ways, going back a ways too. Yeah, there is a great similarity uh, between the. I mean, the X Files movie was obviously much more careful to fit in with X Files continuity, whilst yeah. at the same time doing what this did and and trying to appeal to a new audience. But it did so in a way that I thought was done with a sympathy for the the the, the content and the style of the TV show whilst at the same time absolutely taking advantage of the format of cinema and the extra money. The budget, yeah, it's the money. Yeah. And often those those things are the things that will sink a a film adaptation. Some of the the things I mentioned, it's like when when they've taken something that is essentially a studio-bound TV property uh, that... That's almost, that's almost it's it's raison d'etre has been created within an environment that is, you know, back then so much closer to being just one step away from the theatre, and yeah. so all of its strengths are built around the fact that these are, are studio shot things and the, the 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 kind of claustrophobia of it and the talkiness of it is what makes it what people love why it's why they watch it and then you try and transfer that thing to the big screen but you go oh we're you know we're we've got a cinema we can go out and we can do location shots we can do special effects we can basically just throw a shed load of money at this thing 
and you drowned Tactfully what it is that the show was about in the first place. And the good thing about this Doomwatch movie is it didn't feel to me like it did that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I, I definitely am hearing all those words in and and thinking Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek, the motion <laughs> picture. Um, you know, oh, we got a shed load of money and let's go. And there are something good that came out of that. And there are some things bad that came out of that. And yeah. So, um, George Sanders. George Sanders puts in an appearance in this. I always like him. He is he is the quintessentially Britishy, snidely Britishy guy. <clears throat> from, from <laughs> he used to play the Saint. Did you know that? I didn't know Long that. Long before Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah, in the movies in the you know, I want to say late thirties, early forties. And his brother Tom Conway played the Falcon, which is basically the Saint <laughs> for a different series of films. But yeah. Yeah, George Sanders. Um, well, I'm not as familiar I, with I, him, but I he 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 seemed familiar. It was a big name. It was a big name on that screen. That was the only name I recognized apart from our regular cast members. You go, oh, and George Sanders, cool. Mm-hmm. And then I figured he I. So okay, notwithstanding the fact that he played the saint in a series of films, um, long long ago, and I'm not sure he was suited to the role. Just going to say that right now. I enjoy the films, but he does not, he does not envision the saint in, in my mind. And uh, as an aside to make this not so evergreen, today was the day I heard the news in Variety that Chris Pine has been hired to play the saint in the next uh, movies that are coming from Paramount someday. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Chris Pine. Anyway, um, he's, George Sanders is known for being a bad guy. He, he he's he's a bad guy. I mean, I think he was the voice of he was the voice of the bad guy in Jungle Book, the animated, the original. He's uh, he was certainly a villain in one of the Pink Panther films. He's just oh. he's just nasty. Uh, he comes off so nasty and condescending that when I saw that, I thought for sure he would be the village head who was running the satanic cult. Or the the pagan <laughs> cult, I should say, in you know the Wicker Man scenario yes, he, here, he would he would fit in the Christopher Lee role or something. Yeah. Um, and so for him to be just sort of this minor character on the side really surprised me. But it's but, it's stunt casting. It's it's got to be so people would it, know. It, it, was, it was he was well used though because it was it was a it was one of those kind of quite typical Doom Watch characters where you 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 come across someone who has an agenda and you think that they are the person that is responsible for whatever you know the this week's bad thing is mm-hmm. and obviously he did have an agenda he did he he was he was very cagey about the defense and secrecy aspects <laughs> of what they were what they were poking into but ultimately, when it transpired what had happened, he 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 became in was interested in resolving it. So he came in as a good guy. Yeah, at, at I wouldn't say he was, he was necessarily a good guy, but it was it was that their agendas then aligned. So it 
it was it it was important that he he had that status you know here this guy is an admiral he carries some clout at the mod and they you know they it it it, it adds the jeopardy to this idea that that uh, ridge and shore is going to go up and and do a bit of diving in his restricted area um <laughs> And, and and it makes it all the more dramatic then when they show him the pictures and he and he is forced to kind of to to turn around on that. So I like our it. safe our safe nuclear waste that we've put there. Yes, yes, exactly. Oh, it's just nuclear waste. Yeah, fine, safe, fine, fine. safe. It's not, none of that dangerous chemical stuff. This is safe stuff. We're, we're okay. Um, interesting. At the end of the film, the line where Victoria says to Doctor Shaw, she says, "This village will be in ruins in two years," and I obviously she must be talking about the buildings because, as far as I could see, the village was already in ruins before Doctor Shaw ever got there. They just didn't see it yet. I mean, it yeah. was it was dead. I mean, there there it's hard to you know it's not quite like the Islanders where they're just all desperate to go back to the island and and maybe they can make it maybe they can't until they get the whole that other revelation right at the very end but you know these these people will die on this island if they don't get off and leave for sure so they they were they were dead they were dead already oh let's see amusing that this film was apparently rated x or X rated. I'm rated X. I, I, I for for American listeners, R X and British X in those days are not the same. They are not given out for the same reasons, and they are not. Uh, they do not have the same connotation in, in the United States. The I, I you can't say nothing gets an X rating without being a pornographic film, but it's it's about the sex. It's about sex and nudity and actual sex and in british films back in the age x-rated or rated yeah, x-rated an x rating how about that let's call it that was could be due to um shock value or sensibilities so they didn't want people under the age of 18 to see it and i don't know whether that was 18 without parental supervision or whether that was no you can't go see it but um, it, I have no idea what this film here had that would that would uh, corrupt a fifteen-year-old. Uh, maybe the attack, but I don't know either because uh, you know f uh, famous Hammer films like the Quatermass Experiment played on that. They they renamed the film from Quatermass Experiment spelled properly to <laughs> Quatermass Experiment with a big X, so that. They could say, you know, the film is too shocking for kids to go see. And we know what Quatermass is based upon, and it's not. I mean, yes, maybe there's some body horror there with a man being turned into a plant or guns going off, but I, I don't know what the I don't know what the criteria is. But it, it, it amuses me when you see these old British films and they've they've got an X rating and you're just like, Wow, that's so weird to me. So uh Kids, be careful when you're watching this film, because I I didn't know it, and I let my kids in the room watching this. Um, and the only the only thing that seemed to be um, uh, you know an issue with them was that they got up and left. 
Um, but I don't think it was because they were shocked and offended. So, <laughs> well, it could be. Think, yeah, or it could just be so, they were they were worried that uh, there was something in it as an X-rated film that would be unsuitable for their sensitive eyes. They they didn't know. I didn't know when I watched it. I, I ran across that later on. I think Variant Fourteen website. I haven't actually it's looked just... at what the what the um, DVD because it'll have a current BBFC rating on it. I haven't looked what that is. It'll probably be anyone over the age of four. Um, <laughs> be about right based on the way it the way I saw the the film I saw. <laughs> um, you got anything else? I know. Uh, I, I think that's it. So it's worth watching. It's definitely worth worth watching. Oh yeah. Um, just just like so. The only thing we have left now is Doomwatch Winter Angel, which was made how many years later? Twenty seven. 27 years after the series went off. So that's almost, that's got that many? Yeah. So late 90s? Yeah, 99. Huh. So um, that will be our next one. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure as always. <laughs> Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.